0: Well, so good to be with you again. Thank you for taking the time to make the time and listen to this podcast. I certainly believe that people's stories make our stories much better. If we will just stop and listen and learn from one another, it will be a great place and certainly an even better year as 2021 is now upon us. One with a great story is the one, the only Sue DePratt. Sue, welcome in.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: And I just want to start, uh, my sister is a couple years uh, older than me, and she remembers attending the St. Michael's basketball camp way back when, when she was in high school, and she always talks about you very fondly, how you were firm, how you were very uh, knowledgeable, but how you were kind. Where did those aspects come from?
1: Um, Part of it, it it comes from growing up in a, a, a pretty loving family in Old North End Burlington, Um, and growing up in a sometimes less than friendly neighborhood. I mean, the life Mm -hmm. could have been kind of tough at times, um, and you learn to count on humans and and not things. And that – I'm so excited that your your sister was at that basketball camp. She probably remembers me as – I'm the big cheese. It was (laughs) was awesome. We had so much fun at those camps. And you – and I think kids – Of any age, they they want guardrails. They want to know, and they're going to test them, certainly. So you kind of want to made out of things that won't hurt them, but will guide them. You want guardrails, you want rules, you want things that make sense. You want to be held accountable. You also want to have a good time. You want to have fun. You want to enjoy things. And so few kids who came to those basketball camps were going to pursue basketball at the level that I did. Expecting that they would have that passion for a sport is ridiculous, yeah. but what you want them to learn are all the other things that you learn by being involved in athletics that you can't learn in a, in a classroom, and you do that maybe by being kind, often by being a little goofy. Um, And just letting them have a great experience, that they may not remember how to shoot a jump shot or how to dribble or how to make a bounce pass, but they're going to remember that they giggled over something, that they had great big ice cream cones at lunch. They're going to remember those things, and because that was important, they're going to remember the people around them. We always used our basketball players, great role models that those kids were uh, and are. Um, So you want them to remember the experience, not the items on a checklist.
0: Oh, that's so good. Behind me, there's a picture of St. Michael's College where you worked for over uh, 20 years. But as I was reading and researching, I realized that you were a double major. Is that correct? At the University of Vermont. Why did you choose UVM?
1: Um, Well... (laughs) I chose it because no one in my family had even graduated high school never mind go to college. Wow. So I was a student at Burlington High School and I played basketball there for an amazing woman named Peggy Economo. It was Peggy Campbell and now she's Peggy Economo. And um through the course of my high school career, you know, we get to the senior year thing. This isn't this is little before people were doing applying to colleges as juniors and she says to me, you know, are you going to go to college? I go, why would I do that? And she's like, well, you can keep playing basketball. I'm like, what? Oh, well, sign me up. So she gets me an application. I didn't even get the application. She gets me an application. I fill out the application. I get in, and amazingly, I could continue to play basketball. So it was, um, it was happenstance and having a, a wonderful, kind teacher who knew that even though I wasn't going to, of course, at the time, this is like the early 70s, you weren't going to make a career out of basketball. And, and women at the time, if you wanted to even coach right. basketball, you had to be a PE teacher, which is why I was a PE major going in, because I was like, well, why not? Um, that pr- thought that there was probably something for me in my life beyond Um, you know, getting married, getting a family right out of high school, bowling on Wednesday nights, uh, just, you know, that that maybe there was something else out there that I wasn't clearly aware of. So, Mm. and the double major thing came in, I started as a political science, I mean, as a physical education major, and then took my first political science class uh, in college, you know, those 101 classes that you have to knock off on your your um, requirements, and um, fell in love. And there was nothing so weird as to be a political science major and a physical education major in the early 70s. Hmm. Really, really weird because those two groups of humans just didn't commingle very much.
0: So I just want to jump to this past year, 2020, the pandemic, everything that's gone on. You said back when you started that double major, those two groups of people did not commingle very well. Unfortunately, it seems as though there's been segments in our society culture that has not commingled well this past year. What do you think we should have learned, or hoped we would have learned from those those days when you were in college?
1: Well, I think part of the part of the issue for all of us is that we all have to learn it ourselves. Hmm. And I think what um, while we may have in great big groups learned to commingle a little better. Um, the advent of social media and the ability to think you're right because you someone lets you comment on their page um, I think that's detracted a lot from from folks actually having to get answers and read yeah. and learn and and then you know if you have folks who are fueling divisiveness for whatever reason for whatever gain um, that having prickly people all over the place keeps, other people in power, um, I think it's just, it's fueling, I don't know that we could have learned back then what we need to relearn now. And I think we, hmm. as individuals, have that obligation to be part of a society that not just gives us rights, but obligations, that we have responsibilities to our, our fellow citizens. And that part of that responsibility is to, is to learn, not just follow something that feels good to me. You know, well, you agree with me, Jeff, so you must be right.
0: (laughs) I think that's so good. And that's uh, very wise. I just want to bring in the basketball part of it because I certainly love basketball, but being on a team, being on a team, there's certainly different roles that you have to play. And then I know that you coach and then you served also as the uh, assistant AD and also the AD at um, Harwood Union, where I get to know you very well. As you changed roles. How did you understand the development for yourself? Meaning when you were played in high school, being a good teammate, when you uh, played in college, when you had different coaches, how did you learn maturity? Because I think sometimes maturity simply takes time. And uh, too many of us live in a microwave world when we should be more in a crockpot or a smoker world. But uh, how did you learn those things over time to adjust and be agile?
1: Well, I, I, I think you're right. Some of it just takes time. And and the experiences of failure um, that you, um, if, you know, we, we said to our players all the time, if you're not making mistakes because you're trying really hard, you're not trying hard enough. Hmm. You, you've got to work hard, try, fail, learn from your failure and move on, which is one of the best things that, you know, colleges, especially, I think, provide an opportunity for kids to fail where it's not fatal. And then you learn, okay, that didn't work. This should work. And then you learn a tolerance for other humans that who who may be failing. So as you get more distance from your own personal individual failures, um, you learn to appreciate that other folks may be going through that at the same time. So I think it is partly you really have to get some physical time, different distance between you and your youth. And you have to get some distance between those failures so that you can look back kindly on yourself when you were that age.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, why basketball?
1: Uh, why not? Um, remember, um, I grew up at a time <clears throat> when girls and women didn't do a lot. Um, well, they, they did. They just didn't get noticed for it. You know, I played literally sandlot baseball in my neighborhood. I was like the only girl in my neighborhood. So we played baseball. We played 500. We played all kinds of things. We, we had an ice rink in the winter, so we played hockey. Um, no one told me I couldn't because I was a girl. Because I was the only girl. It was sort of like, yeah, whatever. You just get on that team. <laughs> and then when I went to um, high school, back in the old days, um, right after they invented electricity, I think, when I went to high school, uh, the ninth grade for Burlington High School was at Edmonds Junior High. So yeah. it was like a seven, eight, and nine. And when I went into ninth grade, the JV basketball coach, Jean Robinson, an amazing woman, um, was the JV basketball coach there. And she sees me in the hallway one day, and I'm doing the old North End. I'm being kind of a punk and whatever. And she's like, You, you're pretty tall. You should play basketball. And don't wear that parka, that jacket all day in school anymore. Play basketball, show up at four o'clock today. So, okay. So I started playing basketball because someone told me I should play basketball because I was tall. So, and then it was impossible not to fall in love with it. It was just impossible. It was so much fun. And, um, it but it really was like the only thing to do when I was there. I mean, I think when I got to high school, they had my maybe my junior year they started a field hockey team um there was some track and field but there wasn't a lot and basketball was you know we got we're very fortunate to have gene robinson as a as a coach and then peggy campbell who came up from hickory north carolina so down Mm -hmm. south they liked their basketball so so she was she was Mm -hmm. really good took it really seriously um and it was just one of those things it was there and someone pointed me in that direction. So for those, you know, I know teachers are amazing humans and they sometimes don't get the credit for influencing lives as much as they did. That simple conversation while I was standing in line on a stairway waiting to go to lunch with a coach who says, by the way, you should play basketball, changed my life.
0: Yeah. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you had a good family structure, but it's been said over and over that every student needs another caring adult. Is that also a reason why you went into uh, coaching and being an athletic director? Because you could still have that kind of mentor relationship with students and staff?
1: I, I think initially I started coaching basketball and all the other things that I coached because I couldn't play anymore. Hmm. And and that is, I think, why a lot of coaches coach. And you coach the way you were coached initially. It's that simple. You either learned by negative example uh, or you learned by positive example. But you're going to coach in a way that's pretty similar to the way you were coached to start with. And I started, there's no question in my mind, I'm an incredibly competitive person. And I like the, having the opportunity to win. I don't have to win all the time. But I want to know that I have a chance to. So I started coaching because of that. And then there's a great quote, and I had it taped to my computer at St. Mike's for years and years and years and years. It says the hardest part of a career in teaching, and I changed it to coaching, is that you start your career thinking you're teaching or coaching a subject or a sport, and then you find out you're teaching or coaching kids.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think that was my evolution. And then when you find out that, when you realize, you don't find out, when you realize there's so, you have a vehicle, you are going to be the best part of a lot of kids' day at the end of the school day. You have a vehicle to impart the kinds of strong values and emotions and skills um, in a way that nobody else can. And you, you often, it often happens, oh, by the way, you're not saying we're going to have a lesson in perseverance today. You don't do that. It's yeah. an oh, by, oh, by the way, guess what we learned today, how to stick to it, how to have grit. Um, and so I think that, yes, as that, as I matured as a coach, um, I realized that, realized I wanted to stay involved in that aspect of students' lives um, for as long as I possibly could, even after I couldn't coach or didn't coach anymore and got to be an athletic administrator at Harwood. Harvard.
0: <laughs> And uh, that's something that I've uh, been fortunate to uh, see. And Tommy Young, who uh, led the girls' basketball program to their first state championship, uh, just that's how he coaches, and he really cares about uh, the students who had a big influence on him. Before we transition and talk more about Harwood, I just want to go back. My mom played uh, in Vermont. This is way back when they played three on three, or actually, it was six on six. Do you remember why that changed or when that changed so the girls could play like the boys? And what did that mean to you when it was just basketball? It wasn't girls play this way and boys play a different way.
1: Well, and we still haven't fully integrated men's and women's basketball, boys and girls basketball. We have at the high school level in most states, not everywhere. It's not universal. When I was in high school, when I started playing, we played the six-on-six, six where it was actually four-on-four four in each half. You had um, two permanent defenders, two permanent off-offenders, offensive players, and you had two players who who um, roved. They were the rovers. Hmm. They got to cross the center line. The other two kids on each end didn't. So there was you'd have they bring their f- two rovers, you bring your two rovers versus your two offense, two defense. So you had it was like 4 on 4 an interesting game for sure i was a junior in high school when it changed in vermont to 5 on 5 basketball hmm. and um that was mind blowing i was an offensive player to start with um gotta love the shooters right baby that's right. that's a fact <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah i know how shot i didn't like <laughs> Um, so I was an offensive player. And then you're like, well, you got to run up and down the floor like those rovers do and play defense. <laughs> then I discovered shot blocking. I'm like, OK, liking this a lot. Um, so that was great. But of course, in Iowa, they didn't change to like the like the 90s. Yeah, it was like the early 90s. They were still playing the the original three on three, which is three Six people, three offense, three defense on each end of the floor. And after a made basket, the official would grab the ball, throw it to half court. The other official would grab it at half court, hand it to the offense player that was going that way. So it was literally was two games of half court, three on three. Hmm. Now, that's goofy. And we think that's why. Why do we do that? But honestly, if you're as a coach, you know, the game is never more than three on three. As soon as you introduce a fourth person, it's a different three-on-three. And so those kids learned very great fundamentals. They just couldn't – it just didn't translate to the full-court game, and colleges weren't going to really recruit kids who had only played a half-court game, which is why Iowa changed. So it was – but, of course, when we changed, we had a shot clock the men didn't. Um, We we didn't have 10 seconds in the backcourt the men did. And that was true even at the college. I mean, yeah, at the college yeah. level, it was still true, that there were some, excuse me, some some big differences. Um, I don't know why we can't just have a game. <laughs> you right, know? Right, right. It's a game. Everybody's capable of playing the same game. But there are some for diehards, like I, I love the shot clock. I love the 35-second shot clock better than the 30-second shot clock. Um, I like the 10 seconds in the backcourt. Um, because without it, there's hardly any reason to extend your defense full court. It's just too porous. So I I don't mean to get off into a basketball topic. Sorry, we could do that for hours. No, well, we could. (laughs) And I just want to ask,
0: uh, my daughter just asked me, like, Dad, why did they change women's basketball to have four quarters instead of two halves like the men? So just quickly, do you enjoy four quarters for college basketball, or do you enjoy the two halves?
1: I love the two halves. I think the two halves were, and there are some high schools in the country that play in halves. They, hmm. well, um, they may have gone now. I don't, I don't recall if they've changed when the colleges changed, but that same bat, batch of, of um, rules. Um, oh, there are a lot of high schools who are playing 20 minute halves or actually 18 minute halves. It's an amazing game. And you have, you don't have the natural uh, timeouts at 10 minutes. Right. Where you can rest, kids. You get the two minutes. You don't. You don't have to call that timeout. So I think it's taken some of the strategy away. Mm-hmm. Um, I've certainly watched a bunch of St. Michael's games. Um, that they they play in quarters, and I I personally prefer the halves. I loved it when we played in halves because we went from quarters to halves um, in college, and I love that. I just think it there's more strategy involved, and and. I loved to play a game that made me, that forced me to play a lot of players. Yeah. That you play fast pace. They'll, you know, basketball is a pretty simple game. You play defense to get the ball to play offense. You don't play offense to lose the ball to play defense. (laughs) So it's a one-way equation. It's a simple game. And if I can play a game that forces me to keep putting kids, fresh kids in because they're getting fatigued, big court, certainly the college court's big, and women are a little smaller, so they're covering a lot more ground. That means more kids get the experience. And so our bench was always like nine or 10 deep. Hmm. And if you give me a freebie every 10 minutes, I get two minutes to rest my kids. I might be tempted to not do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Um, also, With Vermont, I know there's a handful of states that allow or have shot clocks for high school basketball. Somebody told me once that Vermont would never do it because it's a financial issue. Some of the smaller schools wouldn't be able to afford it. And I just um, am kind of perplexed because a couple years ago, a few years ago now, there was a five to seven game in a high school varsity game, and they just tried to stall. What are your thoughts on Vermont having a high school shot clock?
1: I think it changes the game. I don't want to say, sig- well, it kind of does. Um, it, it forces you to be efficient, number one. A, a, take out the, it doesn't let you stall. There's still different ways to stall if you want to, but uh, not obviously to the extent of that five to seven. I remember that game, oh, oh painful. Um, nobody wants to watch that. And th- the issue with that is that becomes all about somebody deciding winning is more important than learning and i've never subscribed to that the shot clock it's not that expensive i think that there were several things listen i i played at uvm when they wouldn't let us use the scoreboard and we had somebody with a we had a great big floor model chalkboard and they would write the score on the chalkboard so don't tell me that there aren't ways that you can do 30 second shot clock you don't need a Ten thousand dollar new clock to make that happen you can make those things happen it forces offenses to be more efficient it means at the end of a game you're not just fouling 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 because the offensive team is stalling and you're trying to get yourself back in the game that is that's just a dopey thing to do um that it like i said it speeds up the game it it makes coaches coach a little differently you have to know a little bit more your offense has to be more efficient because you probably you're not going to get too many resets in a 30 or 35 second shot clock. so i think i think it i would dearly love to see it i think it only improves the quality of the game
0: I'd agree, uh, and I do like the three-point line, so I want to keep that right where it is. I oh, wouldn't absolutely. extend it, and I would not take it away. But I, I like the three-point line because me, I'm kind of small, so if it can equalize, I want to do that. But Sue, I want to skip over uh, start your career at UVM. I know time is a little bit limited, and I just want to jump to your time at St. Mike's because you were, I don't know, a trendsetter, trailblazer. I mean, just the career you had specifically for here in Central Vermont. Do you ever look back and realize what you've been a part of as far as opening the doors? One of the first administrators at uh, St. Mike's that was female just to break through that glass ceiling. How does that make you feel?
1: Well, you know, I don't know that I gave it a whole lot of thought until St. Mike's just recently had done a, um, they're celebrating 50 years of women at St. Michael's had previously been an all-male school. And it's not 50 years of women in athletics yet. That's a couple years away, but it's 50 years of women. So they did a little retrospective and were very, very kind and had me me and three of my former players on, on mm-hmm. a, a little Zoom chat. And uh, it was really awesome. And then you look back and you go, yeah, I guess we, we did do a bunch of stuff, but, you know, I was never smart enough to know that I shouldn't ask for things or shouldn't do things. And sometimes, you know, there was a lot of um, benign neglect um, that the, some of the administrative folks were kind of, they just ignored us, which was great for me because I just did stuff I thought we should be doing and, you know, adding new programs and trying, you know, arguing for new coaches and adding some staff to female staff. Um, we just sort of did that stuff. It wasn't anything special at the time. I don't think you, you if you go into an event and you say, we're going to make some history here. E, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable and you're mm-hmm. not going to get anything done. That what, what I think we did, we were very fortunate. We had great people around us, a lot of good support, there was no active antagonism against the women's programs. Like I said, it was benign neglect. Um, and I think that looking back, it was—it's kind of fun to say, "Wow, yeah, we did a bunch of stuff that was kind of that ended up kind of good." So yeah. you, you can feel—I guess as you get—I oh, was gray early. As I get old, it's kind of fun to look back at that. But certainly not at the time where it was anybody thinking we're we're breaking barriers here.
0: And so it was a few years after Title IX, I think it was six years after. What did Title IX mean to you? Was it the same answer that you just gave that you weren't really aware of it until you look back?
1: Well, I think um, through the evolution um, of Title IX and, and how everyone responded to it, um, I was very much aware of what was going on there. I actually became like, one of the Title IX gurus in, in, at both St. Mike's and at Hartwood, um, that you did know what was going on and there were people there were again, there were people who didn't coexist very well, that there was a group of there was a women's um, collegiate program, the AIAW Association of Interscholastic Athletics for Women. They ran their own national championships and that's that's the group that I played under, when I was at UVM. Hmm. And then the NCAA comes in, and I go get over to St. Mike's, and I'm calling to try to make some schedule changes. And folks are like, oh, you're at that place where your AD is trying to get the NCAA to take over women's athletics. And they would just hang up on you. Um, it was it was bitter because hmm. they were seeing that women's athletics would change, and in their mind, not for the better. And in some cases, they were right that what um, Title IX did was it encouraged more men to coach women at the collegiate level, especially um, probably also at the high school level, but certainly I was at the collegiate level at that time, that there was uh, more likely to be equal pay, reasonably equal pay. Now, let's not kid ourselves. The, the, you know, the, the, the top coaches in the country at women's programs aren't getting what top men's coaches right. are getting, and they never will. Um, but um there was an opportunity for men who may or may not have been successful at the at the boys or men's level. They had another v- venue that they could coach. And so we saw the number of women coaching women drop dramatically. And and that wasn't a good thing. It's not right. that men shouldn't coach women or women shouldn't coach men, but in the society we live, we need women to see, women and girls to have strong positive female role models. And we lost a lot of that with Title
0: hmm. IX. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Sue De Pratt makes up time. She's a uh, Googler. There's a lot of good stuff about Sue. And uh, locally, we just know her from being the uh, longtime athletic director at Harwood Union. 14 years. Is that correct? You're at yeah. Harwood? Yeah. 14 yeah. years? Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: don't job hunt. Very, job <laughs> jump very often.
0: <laughs> so a couple of questions be at St. Mike's and we'll go to uh, Harwood. St. Michael's College, I guess recruiting anywhere in Vermont can be difficult, unless maybe you are the University of Vermont right now in 2021. The last few years, they've had a decent job of being able to recruit because what they've done. What kept you at St. Michael's College so long? It wasn't in no offense. It wasn't the national championships you did or did not win. But there was something that seemingly kept you there for that uh, two decades. What was it?
1: Well, um, I had some chances to leave. I, I had probably five really good opportunities yeah. to leave St. Michael's. Um, one was at Bentley University. Um, one was at the, uh, West Point. I was offered the job at West Point. I was offered the job at UVM at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of, if you know St. Michael's people, they hmm. love St. Michael's and there's a reason for that. And it is so easy to be the staff, the faculty, they're so supportive. The kids are amazing. Now, honestly, our resources were not on par with other schools. We, right. we just weren't. We didn't have the same recruiting budget. We didn't have the same scholarship budget. We didn't have the same um, uh, opportunity to get uh, equipment and you know stuff like that. Um, but it was—I don't say it was worth it because well, one, my family was here, so that made it a little easier. I mean, it made it a lot easier. My mother <clears throat> probably would have killed me if I left early. Um, but um, just knowing what you had and what you were dealing with—I think when you grow up at the, especially on the on the edge that I did, where everything was new, you were you were making you were creating the traditions that you hope would stick around, but there was nothing before me really to, to latch onto. And as you grow into that and you watch what other people's struggles are in other places, you go, why would I trade that? Why would I trade that for anything? Mm-hmm. And this is, St. Michael's became my family. And and that is, um, that's the best kind of work relationship you can have is that the people around you make it impossible for you to leave.
0: Well, I know that uh, you're still family for all of us at Harwood. When you came in for uh, the playoff game, the girls um, quarterfinal, whatever it was, it was just awesome to see all the attention you received. And I think partially because you believed that the program could turn around when at the high school level you see a program struggling and you wanted to turn around so bad in this case because you're a former basketball player, basketball coach. You could have stepped in and done it yourself, I imagine. What joy did that give you to see that what you allowed to uh, take time to turn around finally had reached that point?
1: Well, there, there's no greater joy than <clears throat> watching people that you believe in succeed in the way that you knew that they could. And I think, you know, one of the problems that happens in Vermont, being such a, especially central Vermont, I guess, because we're kind of so rural, is that when you hire coaches, you want to hire the best person you can, who's knowledgeable, who whatever it is, Um, and you often get in a situation with a dearth of applicants, I mean coaching's a tough job and and you've got to commute to Harwood if you know, you're not gonna come down from Colchester every day to do that. So your pool of applicants is kind of small. And there are times when you look at it you go, Well, we've we've got a coach. Well did you have interviews? Well we had one applicant, so we've got a new coach. Um it doesn't happen with basketball really, but it does with a lot of other sports. So being able to hire a good person and know that they had the basketball knowledge to move themselves forward and the drive to learn what they didn't know. And, but first and foremost would be a great mentor to the kids around them. Hmm. You, you, you jump on that with, with both feet. So it, and then watching Tommy just do the things he needed to do by creating the culture he needed to create. It wasn't an offense. It wasn't a defense. It wasn't a special play. It was creating the culture that he needed to so that his players trusted him. He trusted them. And together, they did the kinds of things you knew that they could. So honestly, my heart was it grew six times that night.
0: (laughs) What can you say about the adjustment you had to have from being at the collegiate level to the high school level where you could have a very athletic family move in or an athletic family move out and it truly affect the entire sports program being different than that of college?
1: Well, that's true. You don't get to recruit kids. Well, you're not supposed to, that's for sure. But (laughs) you, you don't get to recruit kids at the high school level. But the beauty of public school is that it's public school? It's hmm. for everybody, and you ought to be giving as many kids as possible an opportunity. That doesn't mean it's not a bit of a meritocracy. You 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 can't start playing hockey as a sophomore in high school, for instance. Right. Right. That, that you're not gonna you're not gonna be very successful. There are still a couple of sports where you might be. And I think volleyball at this point in Vermont is one yeah. of those sports. Um, bowling is probably one of those sports where you can start to learn in high school and be fairly successful. I don't know how much longer that will last, but it'll, it will be for a little while here in, in, in Vermont. And I think if winning is a noble goal, there's no question about it. But if it's your first goal and only goal, you're going to have a lot of miserable nights in high school. (laughs) That what you're trying to do is give kids these opportunities. And it's not that winning is happenstance either. It's not just, oh, well, we won today. Yay, us. Um, It really has to be focused attention. And I think that um, whether you have tremendous athletes or not, you know, I was I would jokingly refer to my teams at St. Michael's as the Wayward Smurfs. That nobody in our league had shorter kids than me. We, my my centers were like six one. That's it. <laughs> you know, we're playing against six four, six five kids. Uh, if I had a six one center, I like celebrated for years. And my point guards, yeah, five four. Put that. Look that, that that just doesn't happen. So yeah. you have to make do with what you have. And I think as an administrator, what my job was, was to make sure my coaches knew number one on my list wasn't them winning every day. Now, I know as a coach, I'm going to put that pressure on myself. I know players, parents are going to put that pressure on on coaches. Players may put that pressure on coaches and themselves as well. But from the top, they need to know, learn, grow, provide a an amazing culture of, of empathy and growth for your players and we'll be good. And, you know, I, I don't want that family to move out if they're terrible, you know, if they're really, really good athletes, but if they do, that's public education. And you know what, that's kind of a good thing because you learn other things.
0: Well, I think you mentioned it before and with uh, halves instead of quarters that you get to play more students, more athletes. And um, it's just important that we look at the the whole picture of what public education is about, what uh, sports is about and allowing people to uh, get involved. My sister and I were talking once, and we had, she shared this expression from, I think it's Rudolph, where the Island of Misfit Toys, and they said, even among misfits, we are misfits. (laughs) Sometimes teams are that community that certain students truly need. How important is it that we encourage kids, even if they're at the end of the bench to get involved and stick with a team and uh, finish out that commitment, at least for that season, if not for their high school career.
1: Well, I think it's really important. um, Unless, unless there's just not a positive exchange for that student, you know, if I'm number 10 on a bench that the coach plays seven players and they don't have a way of getting me actively involved in my, my own growth as, a, as an athlete, um, having something to do with the success of the team other than just practice fodder. Um, if that's like a negative relationship, then, then, then don't do it. Yeah. Yes, I want you to stick with your commitments. But I also need a commitment from the coach that says, you know, and, and, and I know I've said this to a thousand coaches. You don't have to play every player, but you've got to coach every player. yeah, every day. And when you if you can look past a player, if you don't notice that that player is not at practice today, they don't you don't deserve them on your team. Hmm. So um, yes, I want you to because there are things you can learn, yes, by sitting on the bench and by being a good teammate but but you learn other things, not just in games. that's why, you know this whole pandemic. We didn't play games, yeah, and we're yeah. ruining that. You know what? There's a lot of other things we can teach our students that have nothing to do with actual competition with another another opponent. So I think that I want them to. I want them to have an opportunity, if it's a reasonable opportunity. You can't just say we're going to take everybody who wants to play. Right. You know, tiddlywinks and put them on the tiddlywinks team, and they there, there's no there's no growth in that. But neither should you say well, we're only going to have 10 kids on the basketball team because I'm only going to play like seven and I just need the others for practice. Yeah, I don't like that either. But yes, commitment is important, but it's reciprocal commitment.
0: Uh, that's, that's well said, very well said. Uh, on the pandemic, and I know uh, we hope in Vermont to start basketball, at least practicing soon. Some schools already are. No contact, uh, no games scheduled yet. Uh, How difficult would that have been for you as a player, knowing that uh, you love this sport? You can kind of do some drills, but there's no, say you're a senior, but there's no games that final season. What do you think you hope uh, you would have learned from that experience?
1: Well, I'm one of those really crazy people that I, I love practice as much, in some cases, even more than games. I I didn't need nearly as much mailocks for practice as I did for games. Um, What you want kids to learn are the things that are harder to learn. It's like, initially, you're a senior in high school, you're whatever in high school, and you're gonna remember the last five or six games you played. You're gonna remember if you went to the playoffs, you're gonna remember that for a couple of years. And then you're gonna remember the people you're going to remember moments you're not going to remember whole games you're not going to remember did 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 we beat them or did they beat right. i don't really remember you know you might remember the big like you know like harwood girls certainly are going to remember they they won a state championship are they going to remember every detail about that year no yeah. so the, the it's incumbent upon coaches to educate themselves to the point of how can i if 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 one of the things that we're teaching kids is um, perseverance or teamwork or subjugating individual goals to team goals. If we're teaching those things, how can I do that without that handy-dandy game? Because yeah. not everybody's going to play in that handy-dandy game. It, 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 I'm off the hook. i got to play some kids. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to win this game. So it's incumbent upon coaches to fi- figure out how to do that. For me, personally, I think I loved being in practice. I loved Being challenged. I love being challenged by my coaches. I love being challenged by my teammates. I love that. Games interrupted that. So I don't think I personally would have had a big deal of it. But I also didn't grow up in a culture that said, you know, the only thing that matters is the NFL on Sunday and, you know, high school football on Friday night. I didn't grow up in that culture that said your only validation is by the stuff the public sees. I preferred the other stuff.
0: Well, I agree. I told my daughter, uh, she's a junior at Harvard. I said, well, you can rebound. I'll be six feet away so we can practice a rebounding or you can shoot, just be six feet away. And there's still uh, aspects of the game that I love to do just for fun. And what you shared was so poignant because I missed being part of a team for several years after high school and college. And there's just something that can't duplicate going to practice road trips eating to team dinners and it is those moments power of moments I forget who authored the book but that's a tremendous book as well but so I thank you so much for your time and just for being a part um, just what you've been able to accomplish uh, I just look back and I'm just so grateful that it was during a time where I got to uh, spend some time with you at Harwood to get to know you better but what would you share with kids, students, parents, even now of the importance to know that um, you don't have to go back to what you said about you don't go in with a thought of being a trendsetter. You just go in with the thought of I want to live today. How important is that for people now where I think sometimes social media says be a hero, but I think there's things we can do to be hero makers instead.
1: I I think it's about relaxing in the moment and and understanding what I do today may or may not make a big difference, except it might make a difference to me. And if I can take care of that part of my life, if I can be true to myself, if I can say, you know, I'm doing okay with who I am and what I'm contributing to the humans around me, then, then that's okay. That you, like you said, you, you don't know you're being a trendsetter. You shouldn't know that you're being you're making history because you know it's there's a lot of history being made every day. Not all of it's good. So mm-hmm. you you kind of hope that you have the solid core of wanting to do right. And you know, my mom said to me once, I I was I had a, a year my first year coaching softball at Saint Mike's. We were 0 and 10. We had Owen disease. We were Owen, one, <laughs> Owen, two. We, it was terrible. And I crabbed about it every time I'd go home to, mom and to my mom. My mother said, well, darling, you're right. They're not very good. Do you want to win or do you want to be right? Hmm. I'm like, oh, darn, can I be both of them? <laughs> and what she meant wasn't like, do you want to, it was, do you want to do right, not right. be right? And, and that has driven me my whole life that I, I want to, I don't, it doesn't matter if I win, if I'm doing it right. And accepting that, especially as a very competitive person, wasn't the easiest thing in my life, but it was probably the most important thing in my life.
0: Sue, thank you so much for making the time. I mean, you dropped some gold nuggets that we just need to listen and re-listen to simply because uh, life is not fair, but we can choose a great attitude. We can choose to be there for people. And you have done that very, very well, whether as a teammate, a coach, an AD. I'm
1: I'm losing your audio, Jeff.
0: Well, we just thank you You for all that you've done. So, uh, Sue, just thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was great to see you again. Stay well, my friend.
0: And again, that's Suda Pratt. Uh, You can find more information about this podcast, others, Jay Fuller interviews on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And now the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller interviews on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, wherever you can find that there. We thank you so much. Uh, Listen to someone's story and uh, learn from it. It'll make your story much better. Thanks all.